what does God want us to know? Basically this, these are the first words. In fact, I'm gonna be just tracking through the book of Revelation. I don't know if you have a paper copy or you're using your Logos copy. It doesn't really matter to me, but the, the first verse is the essence of the book. And so it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis means see clearly. Actually, it's the word for unveiling. Uh, when I was little, my father worked for General Motors for 46 years building cars. He made the bumpers, uh, the design for them, ground them out of metal. And once a year, they'd have the Detroit Auto Show and they would cover up the newest models with uh, tarps or sheets or something. And on TV, they would pull the sheet off and you'd see the newest whatever version of whatever car you wanted to buy and you, everyone was excited and it would be on TV. That's the word apocalypsis, something that's covered up that you pull off the covering and it's clearly seen for the first time. So God says, I want to help you clearly see Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation says, the book of Revelation is God sending this picture of Christ. So it all of a sudden makes the whole book very unique. To show his servants. So we're getting into brand new territory. There's no other book of the Bible that God sent to Jesus to give to us. It's unique of all the books of the Bible. That's why it's at the end. That's why it's a whole genre of literature. But the reason for it is this. Now, you've already studied or going to study the book of Hebrews, the opening verses of Hebrews are fantastic. Look, look at this. God, who at various times in various ways spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, now the Bible defines when the last days are. They're the times when Christ came to earth and onward. So we're in the last days. If people mock you and say, you're not in the last days, everyone's, in fact, I get comments all the time. Um, online. We're not in the last days. In fact, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, the most amazing event happened. Everyone got scared around the world. It's a global event. People are scared. They're worried that Russia's going to do something, maybe even send missiles toward Europe or us. And so people started watching prophetic videos, which I have a lot of them online, and they started commenting saying, we're not in the last days, we are in the last days, according to God, not according to them, because those people define life by themselves. But God says, in these last days he's spoken by his son, whom he, that's God the Father, appointed heir of all things. So God the Father appointed Jesus to be heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. God made the worlds through Christ, we know that. Paul said, by him were all things created, that are in heaven and earth and under the earth, Colossians 1, 15 and 16 and 17. So Jesus is the creator, Jesus is the heir of all things, but look what else. He is the brightness of God's glory, and I love, I made it in yellow, the express image of God's person. A great Bible teacher of generations ago, his name was W.A. Criswell, the pastor of First Baptist Church. If you've ever heard of Billy Graham, he went to church. He was a member of that church. So it was this massive Dallas church. Criswell was kind of the granddaddy of all the Bible expositors. He taught through the Bible one verse at a time and, and was very good at it. And when he got to this verse, he says, you know what? The only God you'll ever see is Jesus Christ. When you get to heaven, you're not gonna see three gods walking around up there. There is one God in three persons, but two of them are invisible. They're spirits. 
One has been incarnated into visible flesh to be seen. That's Jesus Christ. And so the way we understand the invisible God, the Father, is to see, look at this, the express image of his person, Jesus Christ. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that's God the Father. Then look what Jesus says in John 14, 9. His, the disciples were struggling with all this too. They were saying, how do we know what God the Father looks like if he's invisible? And Jesus says, have I been with you so long that you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? He said, if you see me clearly, you'll see God the Father clearly. That's fascinating for this book we're studying. And then it ends with the part everybody's interested in. The first verse is why the book of Revelation is so contested. The things which must shortly take place. That's the future. That's the map of the future. So that's the book of Revelation. If we were to distill it down into a, a little chart, uh, and you'll see this just about every class. This is one of the big elements that'll be on your test and everything. It's the seven parts and where they break down, and I'm gonna actually be challenging you because it's a great witnessing tool. If someone asks a question about prophecy or the Bible or God, you should know right where to take them in the Bible. And so it's just a great thing to know. But the first section we're on is Christ's church on earth. Now, most, most people like pictures better, so let's just show the whole book of Revelation as an animated chart, okay? We are the church on earth. That's the first three chapters. The next event is going to be what John 14, what. Mark Strout was just talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. He talked about 1 Corinthians 15. It's also in Revelation 3, Luke 24, and Acts 1. And that's the rapture of the church. And what happens after that is we are going to stand one at a time before the raised judgment seat of Christ, the bema, as Paul used the word from his ministry at Corinth. And then the tribulation launches on earth and it, it comes down and hammers the earth in fact, 58% of all humans living at the start of the tribulation don't survive past chapters 15 and 16. 58%. We're watching Ukraine and, and the mass graves. They're having trouble burying hundreds and thousands of people. The world is going to be working with hundreds of millions of people that will cumulatively total 58% of current world population is about 4.8 billion people will die. That's why people don't like Revelation. They say it's gruesome. It is. Sin is horrible. It culminates the second coming of Christ, ends the tribulation. It launches Christ's thousand-year rule. That's Revelation 20, the first six verses. That reveals something that a perfect earth does not make perfect people. God makes a nearly perfect earth. I mean, the ecology is perfect, the atmosphere is perfect, the, there are no carnivorous or poisonous, no carnivorous beasts and no poisonous animals or spiders or anything, and yet everybody rebels against him. As soon as Satan gets out, boom, there's a rebellion. And so the Lord steps in, ends the rebellion, and we go to the ending of Revelation, the great white throne. Now let's talk about just one, one little passage in Revelation. Notice what it says in Revelation 11. It says the whole world is gonna be watching. In chapter 11, it's the two witnesses. 
those two that come preaching repentance and trying to bring the Jews back to the Lord and they're in the court of Jerusalem, if you've seen any of the Left Behind movies, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know what the Bible says? The whole world is watching. For me, as an old, old timer, you know, we've watched things grow in global awareness. You know, it got to be that the Super Bowl was pretty well known. Boy, the uh, Olympics became kind of a globally watched thing. The tsunami in 2004, they say, was one of the first total, the world was glued to the TV set as they watched 200,000 people die in that tsunami. But we're really into global stuff. COVID is the first long-term global event. I mean, how many times have you seen the chart of all the infections and how many people are dying? I mean, it's on the news constantly. COVID was a global event, long, keeping the attention of the world a long time. Now the Ukraine isn't just a global event keeping everyone's attention. It's causing something. It's causing, well, this. I mean, look what Russia threatened. That is the Sarmat missile. Now, you know, I... I um, I'm dyslexic. What that means is that when I was little, I read backward, I wrote backward. It means today, if I'm not careful, I get lost. Bonnie was sleeping once in the car as I was driving, and when she woke up, she said, where are we? And I said, honey, I'm not sure, but I said, we went by all these Israeli soldiers wearing bulletproof army vest helmets, and they were carrying not just machine guns, the bigger ones that shoot like grenades, and I said, and I went through this little opening and they stepped out of the way and I said, now we're inside this. And we were inside one of the enclaves of, that's totally surrounded uh, by the Israeli army. And because I was an American in a nice car, I don't know why, they just let me keep driving. I was following Google Maps looking for Herod's aqueduct. And Bonnie said, we gotta get out of here. I said, honey, I'm dyslexic, I get lost. You know, it, you know just two turns and I'm not sure where I am. But I get off on rabbit trails because of that. If you look at an ancient map of the Roman Empire, do you know what Ukraine is called in the ancient Roman Empire? It's called Sarmatia. Do you know what the name of the worst of all the Russian arsenal is? It's called the Sarmat. It's actually the Ukraine missile. One of its independently navigable warheads, one, can knock out 20 20 million to 100 million people. It can do 240,000 square miles of death and devastation. That's the size of the country of France that one of those missiles can fan out and completely obliterate. Do you see why everyone's afraid? And that thing is hypersonic like they already proved they have, so that thing can evade even America's missile shield. So we're at a time where there's global awareness of an event the Ukraine invasion, and growing global fear of what lies ahead. Well, that's a great thing to live through because guess what? Uh, Bonnie and I just pulled in. We, we travel between places like this. Uh, we do about, I don't know, a fourth of our time in Word of Life Bible Institutes and three-fourths of our time at others in different places around the world. Before COVID, we usually fly 10 or 11,000 miles a month. I mean, uh, 125,000 miles uh, the last couple years we've run between these Bible institutes. It's wonderful. It's exciting. But as we travel 
One thing I've found, now you know I don't have very much of it, but I have to get a haircut. The last haircut I had had was in Rome when I was teaching there. And so we were going to Central America and I looked really shaggy. And so Bonnie says, honey, you need a haircut. And I says, oh, honey, we're in a strange place. She said, I already made an appointment for you. So we, it was by the Tampa airport. I was coming in, going through there to Central America. So I drove in the car to where my appointment was. I went in. I didn't even know boys, men, could get appointments to have their hair cut. I thought that was a ladies thing. And so I went in and they had a little chair and threw the thing around my neck and started working. And the lady said, what do you do? You know how they try and talk to you uh, while they're cutting away. I said, well, wait a minute. I said, I would like just off my ears and squared off in the back, uh, you know, a taper block. She says, mm-hmm, got it. I said, well, I teach the Bible. And she went, And then she said, what do you think of the war in Ukraine? I said, I think it's amazing. I said, it reminds me how fragile our lives are. And she stopped right then. And she said to me, you teach the Bible? I said, I teach the Bible. She said, you know God? I said, I know God. That's a great question. People should be asking you, you know God? She had just come here from South America. And she got a job cutting hair because you don't need to know much English to cut hair. And she said, and by the way, she, all of a sudden I heard the firing up of the clippers. And she just started talking to me. And I thought, are we tapering? Are we? She's not even near my ears. I could feel it running up the back of my head. And basically I lost the little hair coverage I had because for 30 minutes she just kept asking me questions. And this is what she told me. Here's the one minute version. She said, I'm from Peru. I am far from God. I come to America. I come to America. I say, God? And she said, I went, God? And she stopped buzzing me for just a minute. So we had a brief respite from the haircut. She said, God, I want to know you. Send someone to help me know you. And she looked at me and she said, and you're in my chair. Do you know what? God puts before us open doors. These are great times to evangelize. And we should be taking all the opportunities that he puts before us. By the way, this is my wonderful wife you saw in the back. And that's me without my glasses. And this is where we are when we're home. Uh, Usually a month and a half a year in Colorado and it's snowing. I was saved at age six, called into the ministry at age nine. Uh, I was taught that you had to read the Bible through at least once for every year you were old so that you would be able to teach it. That's what they used to say in Bible schools. And so I started reading the Bible through and surpassed my age. So that means I at least hope to live to be 100 because I've read it 100 times. As you already heard, I went to Michigan State, Bob Jones, Masters in Dallas. Bonnie and I pastored local churches for four decades. We've been... Actually, we've been married 38 years. I started without her and was very lonely. Uh, We raised our eight children and and have ministered in 70 countries. And there's my email address if there's something that I say too fast and you want to ask me a question. My personal devotional Bible study method is what I'm using for this. I'm so thankful that part of it is what you have to do at Word of Life, and that is the titling of every chapter. Do you still do that? I love that. That's what I do. I title every chapter, and then I do two other things. I write down lessons, observations, truths, principles, everything I can find. But you know what? I found after being a pastor all these years, most people in most churches I served study the Bible. 
And they always were looking for verses to share with their children, or to share with their husband, or to share with their wife, or to share with their friends. And what happened is the Bible is supposed to be a mirror that we look at ourselves and see how far short of God's expectations of us we become, and we ask him to change us. That's the purpose of the Bible. It's not to find a good verse for my roommate because they're obnoxious, you know, and they need that one, or they're selfish, or, you know, uh, they hog something. No, it's for me to be sanctified. And so that last part that I'm going to ask you to do is, you've already got, so you've got one-third of your whole final project for this class that's half your grade done. That's the title of every chapter. After you do that, you pick, I think the study guide says 10, you pick your 10 favoritest chapters, and you look for the lessons, truths, doctrines that you can find in your own words. So, and by the way, I don't mind if you sit around and do this together, because it's really, it's really transformational. What I've found is no two people quite see the same lessons and truths in any portion of Scripture that God has placed there. There's just so much. But here's the hard part. You write a prayer in which you ask the Lord to unleash at least one of those truths or lessons you found into your own life. Now, I started this out doing it with a group of men. I, when I was pastoring, the last church that we served that we were sent out from as, as missionaries was in Michigan. It was in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I started 10 small groups of men. And, and they were all, they were all uh, affinity groups. They were all friends in different areas. One was retired policemen. Boy, that was an interesting. Uh, one was active duty policemen. Boy, that was more interesting. I mean, I couldn't believe state troopers, uh, KPD people. One was totally successful businessmen. I mean, I don't think anybody in that study group made less than three or 400,000 a year. They were very successful, and they were all the same age, and they all were amazing guys. And another one was coaches and athletic people at Western Michigan. So I had all these different Bible study groups, and I said, if you want to come to this Bible study, it has to be a whole year, you have to follow this plan, and you have to write out your prayer and read it out loud to the group once a week. They didn't like that. Men don't like to admit weakness in public. It's kind of like not macho or something, I don't know. And it was the hardest thing. And I remember in each group, the Lord would prompt one of their hearts. I'd do mine, and they expect me to do it because I was leading. And then usually one person in each of the groups would just, you could see them, they'd, it's kind of like getting ready for, you know, pole vaulting or something where you've got to concentrate before you start running. And they'd go, okay, I'll do my prayer. And we'd all bow our heads and they'd read it. And it was the most transformational thing because you saw the New Testament church in action where it says we're supposed to exhort and encourage one another as fellow, Paul used the word soon, agonizomai, fellow strugglers. And they started realizing that we all struggle. And it was amazing. So that's going to be your study. You can read the details in your guide. The book of Revelation is how to live for God in an ever-darkening world. And our world is getting darker and darker. Uh, Just for you to see, uh, basically Jesus was crucified. Uh, He stays around 40 days, goes to heaven. The first generation church is launched at Pentecost, and the decades start going by, and while the decades are going by, the Gospels are being written, the Epistles are written, and finally, most of the New Testament is finished and spread widely by the 60s and 70s, 
So then we're starting to lose apostles and Paul and Peter are martyred and we launch into the second generation church. That means the, the ones that are led to Christ and the children from the first generation church. And that church, 60 plus years after the ascension of Christ, Jesus comes back down in Revelation and visits those churches. And what he does is he says, you have the Gospels, you have the Epistles, you have the Old Testament, you have the Apostles and all these great pastors that have taught you. I'm going to walk around the church and see how you're doing at what I left you in the Word of God to do. That's Revelation 1, 2, and 3. To think Jesus unseen walked around each of the local churches? That's amazing. But to think he's still doing that is enough to radically change our life. Jesus is walking around watching us to see if we're living for him in our ever-darkening world. Now the context of their world is this is the Roman Empire. This is a National Geographic map of the Roman Empire. The brown part is the Roman Empire. Uh, in fact, you can see Sarmatia. It's up that little plaster thing and to the left of it, right there is Sarmati. That's right where the Ukraine is. It says Ukraine right next to it, to the northwest of the Black Sea there. That's the Roman Empire. And that's the context of the book of Revelation. But the real context are the, the churches that were the epicenter of the Roman Empire. Modern day Turkey has more Greek temples than are in Greece. Modern day Turkey has more Roman ruins that are in Rome or all of Italy, and modern-day Turkey has more biblical sites than they have in the Holy Land. Why? Because it was the epicenter of the world of the Bible. It was the most Roman, the most powerfully civilized area of the Roman Empire is where those seven churches are. Great test case for the gospel of Christ. Okay, now let me show you how, this is my journal. I actually have a little journal you know, at the board meetings at Word of Life, they hand out these little Bible size, they're about the size of my Bible, fits right on top of it. And I just, every year at the board meeting, I get a new one and I just fill it up and usually have to get another one. But I typed out, because you can't read my writing, and here's my title. Now every time I study, I always get a new title or a little bit different. My title for all of Revelation 1 was Jesus, Our Risen Christ, Today and Forever. And then I summarize, and that's only because, and those of you that are going to be teaching the Bible, some of you are going to be missionaries, some of you are going to be pastors, some of you are going to be youth workers, you here are in the beginning of a lifelong habit. And so I add a summary because once I study something, I distill down everything I found because I never quite think those thoughts again because I move on to somewhere else. So I wrote the book of Revelation is unique. It's the only book of the Bible that God gave to Jesus to give to us. Think of that. You have a book that God gave you via his son. All 66 are inspired. They're all God-breathed. They're all flawless. They're all inerrant. But revelation is all that plus something. God the Father wants us to understand his plans and to live with a guidebook. So we never are unclear of what his plans are for our life. That means we are bold. We're confident. We know him. And we're entering the last days of the cosmic battle that's been raging since the Garden of Eden. And we'll see that in this book. Well, here's my first lesson. God sent us everything he wants to see in Christ. So God sent a picture. 
And Jesus said, if you've seen the, the picture of me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact image of the Father. So in Revelation, everything that God wants us to know about Jesus. So this is my first, see number one, in my little journal. And so for you, whatever chapter you pick, if you pick chapter one, you just keep reading that. And as soon as you get in chapter one to a lesson, write it down in your own words. Here are my own words. God sent us everything he wants us to see in Christ. Here's my second one. God gave us the only map of the future. Look, look what it says in the middle of verse one. The things which must shortly take place. These are events. So God, who's the only one that can see the end from the beginning, he sees it all. Sent us a map. Not everything, but what we need to know so we know what he's doing. So we always know how to operate in life, how we fit in his plan for the future. Now look at the end of verse one. See, uh, it says, which he sent and signified by his angel, and then the ending, to his servant, John. When the Bible ends, in chapter 22 of Revelation, there are only two things left in the universe, God and his servants. That's all. Everything else, he's re- He's uncreated and recreated. He makes new heavens, new earth, it's all new. All the rebels are forever suffering the vengeance of his wrath against their sin that they wanted to pay for, so they do forever out of his presence. And then were there his servants. So look what I wrote. Revelation is a systematic repetition of everything God says we need to know to live as his servants. Why do I say that? The book of Revelation has 404 verses, but it quotes the rest of the Bible 800 times. The book of Revelation is kind of like a switchboard where all the lines are coming from the other 65 books and they're connected into one place. And God doesn't introduce anything new in Revelation. He just repeats old stuff and kind of puts it in this vivid explanation of how it fits. Servanthood was the plan Jesus had for his life. Do you remember Matthew 20, 28? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and what? Give his life, what? A ransom for many? That's one of those famous verses we memorize and learn. It was the operating system of Christ's greatest servant and follower named the Apostle Paul. What does he call himself? Paul? How does he open most of his epistles? Paul, a what? Bondservant of Jesus Christ. He, he called himself, he introduces himself as a servant. What is servanthood, by the way? Well, have you ever seen Ben-Hur or any of those movies you know about galley slaves? The Roman world, the Greek language, described the Roman world with eight types of slaves. There were millions of slaves in the Roman world. Eight specific types of slaves operated the Roman Empire. There were the very famous slaves, they were called therapon, you know, T-H-E-R-A-P-O-N. We, we have that word in English called therapists, you know, a therapist, you go to your therapist. All Romans that were wealthy had their therapons, and you wouldn't have known they were slaves. They kind of followed you around the store and they would hold your purchases and they'd say, oh, that color looks pretty good on you, or they would follow you in your business and write stuff down and say, yep, yeah, we're doing great with the crops. We need more avocado planting next year. They were a slave, but they were a therapon. They discussed things with the master. 
So that was a top-ranked slave. There were others. Uh, you probably heard of a diakonos. We call them deacons. Those were, they were like waiters. They, they, they brought stuff to you. They were ministering servants, you know. So at the meals, they were busy, and they were pouring the wine and everything. So diakonos. And the church has those deacons and deaconesses. Uh, there were liturgoi. Those were the temple slaves. They were kind of like priests, and they, you'd, you'd go to a Roman god's worship, and you'd hand your offering, and they'd take it, and they'd do whatever needed to be done with it. They were a slave. But the very bottom slave were these, these galley slaves. You can kind of see, see the paddles go to kind of a little blurry, but they're men on three levels that are paddling. Those men were chained you know, their arms and legs were chained and they were connected to the boat. So they were lifelong paddlers and as soon as they were too old and sick to paddle, they just unhooked the chains and threw them overboard. They were kind of like disposable AA batteries. That's what they were, that's what a slave was. So the word for that is huper, which is the Greek word for under, retes, which is the word for rowing. They were called hupe retes. So, Paul's testimony, and you can read it in 1 Corinthians 4.1, he said, consider me a servant, and there's the word, huperetes, of Christ. It's the same word that God uses to describe David in Acts 13.36. Now, you know what's interesting? The most written about person in the whole Bible is David, 141 chapters about his life. The most successful person in the New Testament that does more recorded than anybody else is Paul. And both of them call themselves, God labels them as servants, just like John, as a servant. God's two greatest servants use the same word. What did an under rower do? They rode to the captain's beat, they rode together, they trusted the captain because, you know, he knew when they were gonna get fed and he knew when they were gonna get there, they just had to trust him. They were chained for life. They didn't have any flexibility. They were doing what he said. And by the way, when an under rower did what he was doing, no one saw him. You notice none of the under rowers are walking around with the little Roman insignia on their head. They were doing their job. You say, what is it? what's this history lesson? Well, why did Paul and why did God call David and why did Paul call himself this kind of servant? Because Paul said, the way I serve God is I'm submissive. You know what that means? A servant doesn't mind being told what to do. You know what the greatest thing you can be in life? A servant. And be willing for God to tell you what to do. And if you serve in the church, for others to tell you what to do. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to make you all do what I want you to do. I came to serve you and to give to you. That's the greatest life. A sensitive, trusting, dedicated, humble life. How do I please the Lord? By making a daily choice. Like John, like Paul, like David. Okay, the fourth thing I learned is to show us God's plan. God wants us to know his plan. So I wrote down, God wants me to know his plan. God wants me to be confident. God wants me to know I'm doing exactly what he called and designed me to do. Do you know what God called and designed you to do? then boldly and confidently and humbly and submissively do it and go through life and let others see that you're following Christ. The fifth thing I found is the very last word of verse one, John. You know what I thought? 
God picked the best guy to write Revelation because he was the one, do you remember John? He's the one that Jesus loved. He's the one that's leaning on Christ, whispering to him during the Last Supper, saying, who's gonna betray you? He's the one that got to go on all those inner circle things, you know, the transfiguration and inside when Jesus raises people from the dead. John really got the best, he was very young and very close to Christ. But he ended up, and look what I wrote, he wrote, the gospel that presented Jesus as divine. Matthew presents him as king, Mark presents him as servant, Luke presents him as the perfect man. John presents him in his gospel by John as God, as divine. And so in Revelation, it continues John's list of sevens. You ever notice all the things that are sevens in John? You know, the seven titles of Christ in chapter one, and the seven sign miracles, and the seven I am's, and all those things that are seven, seven, sevens? Well, John really gets a lot of them in the book of Revelation. And there's more about the deity of Christ in Revelation than the other book of the Bible. So that's amazing. Number six, it's a divine source of daily blessing. Look at verse three. Blessed. It's the only book of the Bible that says you get blessed for reading and hearing. So you guys are in for double blessing. God said, as you read this book, and that's your assignment, you read the whole book that's in this, the uh, syllabus, you're getting blessed doing that. And as you hear the book of Revelation read, God says you're blessed. So this is a unique book. But look at this. Number seven, God's pathway to the best life possible. God wants us to be blessed. How do we get blessed? By reading. That's directly being exposed to God's message. Personally studying the Bible. When I was your age, remember I went to Bible school and I was, I was in Bible school at age 19 and my first professor said, you'll never teach the Bible until you've read the Bible through at least once for every year you are old. And I thought, oh no, I'm 19. I've only read the whole Bible once and I read it because someone paid me $100. They said, if you read the whole Bible, we'll send you to camp and it cost $100. And I couldn't, my parents were poor, I couldn't afford $100. And I said, I'll read it. And I carried it every day to school and read it and got my $100 and went to camp. And then I would just do roulette. From that point on, I would just go like this, you know. Read a little bit of the Bible every day because I was supposed to. You know, it's whatever came up. So I get to Bible school. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life teaching the Bible. And the professor who taught the Bible like I'd never seen, this guy was blind. The one that, that said this. He was a blind Bible teacher. He was about 90. And he would quote the passage before he taught on it. And then one word or one phrase at a time, he'd teach through it, and I went, how do you know the Bible like that? So he, I went up afterward, I said, how do you know the Bible like that? And he was blind, so he kind of went toward the sound. He, and he, 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 I don't know if he knew where I was, but he was looking in my direction, and he said, son, he could tell I was a boy, son, You'll never teach the Bible till you've read it through at least once for every year you are old. How old are you? I said, 19. He said, how many times have you read the Bible? I said, once. Because I had to for $100. And you know what? It changed my life. I made a chart of the 168 hours a week. I found out that it only takes 72 hours to read the whole Bible out loud. How do I know that? Because I bought the Bible on cassettes uh, you know, tapes back then and then CDs, and there, there are only 72 of them. 72 CDs is the whole Bible being read out loud. 
Not fast, just normal. A sixth grader can read the Bible out loud in 72 hours. That's what uh, the people that record the Bible have found because they have children's editions and the kids read it. So I said, wow, I have 168 hours a week and I want to read the Bible through and catch up with how old I am. And so I started crossing off everything I did that wasn't going to last forever. And I found that I had about three extra hours a day. And so I started reading. Actually, I had two and a half hours a day. I started reading the Bible two and a half hours a day when I was 19 years old. And by the time I was 21, I was on my 21st time through the Bible. And I was a completely different person. Did you know just reading it changes you? And every time I read, I'd look for something different. I'd, I'd underline, the first time I read the Bible, I, I took a highlighter and I marked every name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from cover to cover. The first thing that happened, I got to class after one month and people looked at my Bible. They said, we've never seen a person that their Bible's completely marked up. I said, oh, I just finished reading it this month. They went, this month? I said, yeah, I'm looking for every name of God. The second time I read, I looked for every prayer. Everyone that prayed, what they prayed for, how they prayed, where they were, all that, took a whole month. Totally changed my understanding of prayer. Then I looked for all the prophecies in the Bible. Then I looked, you know what I mean, I started, and I still do that, I look for something all the way through. If you read it, directly expose yourself to God's message, he'll bless you. If you hear it, that means the goal was to block all the other voices. Have you ever talked to someone and all of a sudden they go, boop, put on their big, you know, beats things? You know what that means? Thanks for talking. I'm going back to what I was doing. Boop. Or they put their earbuds in. Or their AirPods or whatever they have. That's what this means. That you totally focus. You, you're listening. My three heroes are right there. George Mueller, C.T. Studd, Hudson Taylor. Those servants of the Lord transformed their generation because they had the habit of putting on those earphones and blocking everything out until they heard from God. So how do we live the best life possible? It ends, look at how verse 3 ends. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep. Tereo is the Greek word. Keep means we go from being merely a hearer to a doer. We treasure it. In fact, if you want to read 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about this in describing what a servant of the Lord looks like. But I can't go to 1 Timothy because I'll never get done. Then it's to the seven churches. Why seven? In the Bible, seven is a complete set. Seven days in the week, seven colors in the spectrum, seven notes in the scale. We've picked up the idea of sevens, and there's sevens all the way through. A heptatic set is a complete set. It's not perfect, it's just all there. So God says those seven represent all the churches, and by the way, churches are plural. So it wasn't just to the church at Ephesus. It says, as we'll see when we get there, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, and it's plural, churches. So I wrote, the message of following Jesus was to all believers then and now. And verse 5, and this is a great verse, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, to him who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, I love it, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins. And I wrote down, Jesus loved us, loosed us, and washed us from our sins. And that's the greatest possession we have Forever we're going to offer worship. That's what verse 6 is about. We're a kingdom of priests. 
And then we start coming, look at verse seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all of a sudden, John starts weaving together all the Old Testament. Remember I told you there are 800 different quotations and allusions and pointers back to Old Testament passages. This is one of them from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And I also remind you of Daniel 7. But basically, when we get to chapter 8, Jesus starts talking, and look what he says. I am, remember John has all those I am's from the Gospel by John. He's got another one. I am Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end, I'm who he who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. How can you apply this fire hydrant of truth you're going to encounter in the book of Revelation? Well, let me show you. Because I encountered that. I thought, I'm only on verse 8, and I have... 10 pages of stuff, and I don't want to merely be a hearer, but I want to be a doer. So how are you a doer? Well, look, God offers to us, in fact, I'll illustrate this. He is omniscient, omnipotent, all-loving, and omnipresent. That's a truth. How did I get to that? Well, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the Almighty. He said, I am the embodiment of the attributes of God the Father. I'm the exact representation. Theologians have said he is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and all those other things. Okay? Now we're going to systematic theology. In systematic theology, there are 25 attributes of God, communicable and incommunicable. You'll cover all that or you already have, so I'm not going to talk about it. But here they are. Those are all the attributes of God. You know what? Every one of them are illustrated in the book of Revelation and every one of them are applied to Jesus Christ. Now let's just pick four of them, the big ones. Omnipresence, omniscience, love, and omnipotence. How do I apply those to my life? God wants me to get my fears, my troubles, and my struggles into perspective. And this is how I do it. I have to learn to trust God. How? Watch. When I get financial hits, car accidents, tragically lose someone I loved, people even get sick, what do we do? Well, the Bible says we're supposed to trust God, which means nothing accidentally happens in my life. What does that mean? Well, I'm surrounded. God is good, so the roof overhead means nothing's getting into where I am without going through this good God. And the walls are, God knows what's coming. It's kind of like he's at the command center, and because he's omniscient, nothing gets by him. And he is so powerful, he's better than the Iron Dome or you know, any other you know, protective shield. Plus, he's right with me, so I'm never alone. So do you know what that means? My response to struggles in life declare to everybody that watches me, either I believe God is good or I think he might be bad. I think he's wise or dumb. He's either all-powerful or he couldn't stop that one. It was too much for him. He's either everywhere present or he's absent. Now, that is just the first eight verses of 404. But that is just a small example of what you can learn in this book. It's what God wants us to know, but not just 
more facts so I can be, you know, the walking trivia expert. But so that I live in such a way that people look at me and like that person cutting my hair, you know God? I said, I do. I do know him. I ask him to send someone. And that lady listened and, and all the walls came down and she said, thank you for... Now, she didn't commit to Christ in my presence, but I experienced a divine appointment. What does God want us to know? We're living in tumultuous times. You're living in the best time to ever serve the Lord. And he wants you to know that he is good, all-powerful, all-knowing, and always with us.